Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to a very special late night recorded after midnight in the basement with beer <laughs> edition of It's All Political and on San Francisco and Opinion Central. And uh, this is Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer. And we're going to go around the table here with our all-star cast of uh, the political team here at the Chronicle. And uh, just so you know who's speaking when they're speaking, I'm Joe Garofoli. And to my left on your podcast dial is the big man. Go ahead. John Wildermuth, political writer for the Chronicle. John Diaz, editorial page editor. Heather Knight, columnist. Melody Gutierrez, Sacramento Bureau Chief. I'm Audrey Cooper. I'm the editor in chief. All right. So uh, let's. We're going to start with the federal races. Uh, there's a lot that we know, and uh, and there's a lot that we don't know right now. What we do know is that the House is in control of the Democrats. The Senate is remains in control of the Republicans, and we know that there's a lot of House races in California that are literally, <laughs> as our <laughs> governor elect says. Uh, separated by dozens of votes, hundreds of votes. Big man, tell Pre- us. Give pretty us, give much. Us uh, well, the the Democrats are really, really happy that they had the 23-plus votes they needed to take over the House before California even finished, uh, finished voting. Because if they were depending on California, they'd be waiting days or weeks before they had those final we, we numbers. We will be waiting days and weeks before we know the, the well, winners in some of these races in, Cal- in uh, Orange County, correct? Well, in the state in general, because right now, I mean, there were seven seats the uh, Dem- the Republicans, the Democrats targeted seven Republican-held seats, and in at least three of them, uh, with thirty to fifty percent of the vote in, there hundreds of votes separate the two uh, candidates, and the other ones aren't that much different. So, considering that there's people have told me there's expected to be three million or more uncounted ballots after tonight spread out through the state, this could be a long, long count. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what does it mean that now that uh, President Trump, uh, for the first two, years, first two years of his, pregn- of his pregnancy, how much of that beer it, have you it had is, so It far? is late, it is late. For the first two years of his presidency, he had no, <laughs> he had no check. That he was had, fake news. That was fake news. He was not pregnant. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he had the House in con- uh, Republican control, Senate Republican control, a strong uh, majority on the, uh, the Supreme Court. What's it going to mean now? How does, he, how does he change doing the way he does business? Well, what changes in Congress is once one party even controls by one vote, has one more vote than the other, uh, every chairmanship uh, is going to be controlled by that party. Suddenly, the investigations committees are all the Judiciary Committee in the House, all going to be controlled by Democrats. Adam Schiff, who had been the uh, loyal opposition, if you will, for the past couple of years, is now going to be chair. Devin Nunez, who knows what he's going to be doing now. Uh, 
They're going to have subpoena power. Uh, it's really going to change the dynamic. I think we're going to see a oversight not only on the, the collusion and Russian investigation, but I suspect on all these things that are going on in some of these agencies with the Department of Interior, both policy and scandals, it's going to be a different is world. That, but is that a smart strategy for Democrats is just an endless stream of investigations? Does that, it doesn't kind of paint them as being against Trump and, and well, not for something else? Or Well, if you listen to Nancy Pelosi when she spoke tonight, she made it clear. She said, well, you know, we'll compromise when we need to and we'll stand our ground when we have to. But she made it real clear that uh, they can't just be the party and know that, you know, people want to get things done. They want to see they don't want two years of people yelling at each other. And if the Democrats are going to do that, it's not going to turn out too well for them, probably in 2020. And she and Trump did speak tonight on the phone. So maybe that's a signal that they will. If can they cut a deal? Can can Trump and Pelosi cut a deal? There's their two alleged great deal makers. <laughs> Pelosi certainly has a better track record at it. Um, can they? Is there is there hope for any kind of deal? Now I mean, Trump hasn't really proven that he can cut a deal with his own party. Really, there haven't been a lot of policy wins. And from the dealmaker president, I think if the Democrats were smart, they'd start pointing this out. So, you know, on one hand, Nancy Pelosi will have an unenviable task of trying to keep that majority to try to not look like an obstructionist party. But on the other hand, if she can get a couple of things through, she starts looking like a rose. She's the one who can actually work with a president that a lot of people don't want to have anything to do with. I think what you're going to see in a hurry is effort on an infrastructure bill, because that's something that both parties say we need it. We need to fix up the uh, infrastructure of the, of the country. And there's common ground there. And it depends on whether you can get the president to sign on, but at least it's an area where people don't automatically sit and say, you know, no. And they've been about talking about that infrastructure bill for two years, so um, it's strange that that hasn't happened yet. Yeah, and and, uh, and also you have about a six-month window to do it because then everybody starts running for president and... That's going to be. They're about, already running for president. Yeah, they're already, but like officially <laughs> running for president, there'll yeah. be about two but, dozen of them. You know, and the other thing that happens starting tomorrow is Pelosi wants those tax returns from the president, so they're going to have a few big swings outside of you know right off the bat that are going to make this a very uncomfortable time in Washington for the president and the president's supporters. If he can see through that and get a deal done, he doesn't strike me as that kind of person. He seems kind of binary in who he likes to deal with. So we'll see if he if he changes tack. I think he'll have to if he really wants to have any wins when he's up for re-election. Now, one thing you see is that uh, Mitch McConnell in the Senate has a little more room to play now. He can lose on certain issues of Rand Paul or uh, some of these other guys and still get the numbers he wants. So he's got a little better position of strength in the Senate than he has right now. The exit polls tonight said 41%, this is like the, the last time I looked at it, 41% identified health care as their top issue, 23% said immigration. What, is that, what message does that send to both sides? I mean, you certainly saw this leading up to the election. I mean, immigration was the push from uh, President Trump over and over. There was a lot of talk of that. And so I'm not surprised that that was something that people were, you know, saying is on the top of their minds. And what, where that drove them on election day, I think, is the interesting thing, too. Do you think the president made a mistake by 
talking up immigration to sort of, you know, the last ditch effort to get out the vote. I mean, his short term gain, he, he saved the Senate. And maybe he didn't have he, anything else to talk about, though. That's the we could have talked about the economy. He could have talked about this. The economy is very strong. Unemployment's very low. Um, you know, he can. Talk but I, but I think that's exactly why only twenty three percent said immigration was number one. If you are unemployed, then that starts to go up a lot more. But if you're employed and you just see your health care premiums skyrocketing or have a hard time, you know, with uh, the legacy of Obamacare, then that's something that's very personal. But in a strong economy, I think immigration is a much more abstract worry. Or maybe that the uh, economy is only helping a certain layer of people, and it's not uh, its not helping everyone. I, I think immigration uh, was a short-term loss for the president, particularly when you see, like, the Nevada Senate race has just been called for Jackie Rosen, uh, the first pickup for the Democrats of the night, uh, certainly a big Latino vote in uh, Nevada. Uh, in Arizona, a seat held by Jeff Flake, a Republican, is right now neck and neck. Uh, I think that probably in the long run, in, in the short run, certainly did not help uh, salvage things for the president. And, and I just can't help but think that this is corroding the Republican brand for the long term, as we saw in California with uh, Pete Wilson in 1994. Yeah, except what you also notice is that he did make sure that those Republican Senate seats stayed Republican. And I'm sure you're going to hear him tomorrow and after that saying... You know, I'm the guy that saved uh, saved the Republican Party and saved everything like that. And you have to remember in uh, Pete Wilson, Pete Wilson won that race. And it worked out real good for him. It didn't work out so well for the Republican Party in the future, though. There was a, there was a night of firsts tonight. Uh, the first Muslim woman uh, elected to Congress, first Native American women elected to Congress, the youngest woman. Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez was elected to Congress. She's, I think, 29. And um, so what makes us think that this, the, the year of the woman is more than a one-off and it's a long-term trend? Do we think that this is just like a, something that's happened this year as a reaction to Trump and a midterm year? Is this, do we see any signs that this could be long-lasting? Well, more women were running than ever before. So you have a better chance if there are more of you running. And look, I always say, what is that terrible cliche when the guys mess it up, they finally put the women in charge? That's what I think it's really about. <laughs> I mean, it's a di I'm, 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 It's not just the cheetah logger speaking either. I think that there <laughs> is there is an interest in having candidates who are talking about real issues and who are talking to people and not having that affected politician. And women are doing that really effectively nationwide. And not just yelling at each other, but actually talking about real policies and substance. And remember, more than anything else, the hardest race for anybody to win is that first one. If you're in Congress and the fact that you've managed to get to your primary and then you win a seat in Congress, most people who have seats in Congress keep seats in Congress. So there's right now more than 100 women going to be in this new Congress, and most of them are Democrats. And a pretty good percentage of them are going to be reelected re in two years. Hmm. Um, and then it was a mixed bag for candidates of color. Uh, Stacey Abrams is behind at this point in, in Georgia. Uh, she would have been the first uh, African-American woman elected anywhere in America. Um, I don't, that race has not been called, right? Uh, I don't think that's been no, called. She, 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 she hasn't She hasn't conceded. Andrew Gillum would have been the first black governor in Florida history. He uh, lost. Um, to uh, Ron DeSantis, a former congressman who's sort of a, a Trump uh, uh, 
a clone, a protege. Um, what did that What did that tell us? I think it tells you a couple of things. The first is the Democrats are still really bad at the black get out the vote. It was a problem for Hillary Clinton, and it continues to be a problem. You also cannot dismiss voter suppression efforts and the gerrymandering and the institutional problems that disaffected communities have, whether it's their polling place being too far away and them not having um, a car or your provisional ballot being rejected because it's in the wrong ink. Whatever crazy reason, it is still happening in this country. And frankly, I think the national media has done a terrible job of covering that. And then I think you also have to question whether the Democrats on the you know, the more liberal side of the spectrum, which a lot of these candidates of color were, whether that's resonating with voters. Do they want to go further left as the sort of pendulum swings away from Trump? Or are they still looking for centrist candidates? I think the progressives say, no, 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 you know, everybody's over centrism. Uh, Populism is the way to go. Bernie Sanders proved that. I think this election has to show them that they aren't necessarily right about that. We can throw Beto O'Rourke into that, too, Mm -hmm. who is a very unapologetic progressive running in a state that's, you know, hasn't elected a hell of a lot of uh, Democrats in recent years in Texas. And he also lost to Ted Cruz, the most loathed man in the Senate. (laughs) But but far closer than one would have expected, you know, uh, just a few months ago. I mean, he he certainly uh, was strong. And I think we'll be hearing more of him. Well, the other thing is that uh, what you noticed is that these Democratic candidates in red-leaning states didn't lose too badly. But what they did do is they brought out Democrats to vote. There were two districts in Texas that were flipped. There were a couple districts in Florida that were flipped. And that might not have happened if you didn't have somebody at the top of the ticket bringing out the voters. All right, let's let's take a look at uh, the only city that matters, San Francisco, California. Uh, Heather, what, what did we learn in, in San Francisco tonight? Or the prophecy was, uh, of course, the marquee uh, thing on the ballot. Give us a quick explanation of what that was and, and yeah, where it's at. Yeah, I just got back from Rockapulco in the Mission, which has very sticky floors. You cannot try to walk. That's easily. a good election party. <laughs> I would like. Why aren't we there? Yeah, why aren't we there? <laughs> um, so it did win pretty handily. Got sixty percent of the vote. People were pretty excited. There were some big names out there celebrating. Mark Leno, former state senator. Um, some supervisors and the advocate crowd. Um, but they did not achieve the two thirds. Um, that they needed to avoid a lawsuit. So already the no on C side is saying, we're never going to see a penny of this money. <laughs> um, and we will definitely see some fighting over it um, continue. So it's not the end of Prop C, but people are So the, the tax happy. is going to be collected, but yeah. won't be able to be spent. Right. So um, as we all know, court cases drag on forever. I've heard that they will start collecting the money, which is about $300 million a year, but they will probably sit on it just in case... Um, they don't want to spend it and then have to pay it all back. So um, by the time this court case is over in two or three years even, they could have close to a billion dollars to then just suddenly spend on homeless services. So I don't see of- how you see Prop C and what has happened tonight as anything but a slap into the face of our new mayor. She yeah. came out against it. She got some of her her, her buddies, Scott, a state 
Senator Scott Weiner, Assemblyman David Chu, to come out against it at the same mm-hmm. time. She thought she was in the clear that she could say, you know, we just want to make sure that the money that we have is being spent well. And then Mark Benioff, the Salesforce CEO, comes comes out with his checkbook, and he wrote a lot of checks mm-hmm. for Prop C. And more importantly, I think, he was engaged on Twitter as a personality calling out the other tech CEOs who really came across as being um, uninformed, unsympathetic, and sort of oblivious as to what real San Franciscans are feeling about this crisis on our streets. I think it's possible in San Francisco, if you have enough money, to avoid the crisis that we see on the streets. But that's not most of us who live in the city. And voters came out more than 60%, I think, in the latest round in favor of this. The opponents want to see it as a as a defeat, but 60%, yeah. that's that's moving the dial in this town. And it started as pretty unpopular. People really weren't paying attention to it over the summer. It was just kind of dismissed as this crazy coalition on homelessness thing that, you know, wasn't going to happen. But once Benioff got involved and Diane Feinstein and Nancy Pelosi signed on and some big names came out in support, I think London Breed found herself when you're all alone with Jack Dorsey, um, it's not a great place yeah, to be. It's not a good place to be in this city. But look at what the advertising for Prop C was. It said, look, we'll have all this money to spend on homelessness, and we're only going to take it from the, the real rich companies. You're not going to have to pay a nickel. So for most voters, it was free money. Right. And who wouldn't vote for free money? But the no on C side was really confusing. They tried to say, uh, we don't know where our money is being spent now, which is a strange thing for a mayor to say, who's been in City Hall for many years. Um, And then they said the programs that we have are failing, but then they've actually moved thousands of people inside. And um, then they said, no, 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 the program's successful. We just need the current level of money that we already have. And so they just kept changing their reasoning. And I think voters saw through that. There's no way you can see this as anything but a real problem moving forward for London Breed because she has now a measure she didn't want it. They're going to collect taxes that she didn't want to collect. They won't be able to spend any of the money. She didn't want it in the first place, and now the voters are going to put it on her to own cleaning this up. I I don't know how she gets herself out of that mess right now. I think she's handed her potential opponent an issue in the 2019 campaign. I think from the beginning, the mistake that she made in coming out against it is is not coming up with a positive reason why not, a plausible alternative. Like, we need to do this, that, and the other thing before we spend, we have this infusion of $300 Because otherwise, she basically came out opposed to it and then went into the witness protection program. <laughs> yeah, she was, all this tonight, she was at the party there. celebrating the passage of the seawall bond. <laughs> Arguably oh, the, the least, the worst party in town. The worst party in town. Well, I, uh, you know, there, there's probably some money behind it. So. <laughs> oh, Nobody in the city hated the seawall bond. Everybody was for it. You could not have been to a more friendly party outside of the political fray. So where, but seriously, where are these coattails? You know, if you're going to be mayor... You're going to have to own something, and instead of taking it up, like John said, she's given it to somebody else. And there's no sweeter spot than now to do it. Unemployment 2%. uh, She's a new mayor, still on a honeymoon. Why not do it now? Why didn't she do it now? I think that was a politically bad move that is going to haunt her. She could have at least stayed neutral, but she didn't know Benioff was going to come out the other way three days after she did. So I've heard that she was pretty... 
He's been very conciliatory to her, though. I mean, he's played it right down the middle. You know, Willie Brown, who's very close with London Breed, says, well, you know, this is very complicated and this is a human problem. But then on the other hand, Willie was saying, well, the Democrats need clear messaging. I'm like, (laughs) you can't say you need clear messaging. And then on the biggest problem in the city, punt because it's too complicated to explain to people. That is not going to work anymore. One of the most recent mailers from the No on Sea crowd had pictures of London, Willie, Gavin. Was there another mayor? There may have been. um, All saying no on Prop C because, but their argument didn't make sense. They're the ones who've been in charge of the money and yet they're saying, we don't know where this money's being spent and everything's failing. Well, they're the ones who did it. Did, was Newsom officially against Prop no. C, or he just kind of just kind of like punted, yeah, right, right, right. Really then he tried hard. to claim he didn't even know what it was. <laughs> no, yeah, it's, uh, which is the most ridiculous. Like Gavin yeah. Newsom knows details yes. of things. Yeah. He knew the details yes. of that. He didn't come out against it, but he said, you know, we're going to attract more homeless people here, and it's not just San Francisco's problem. He definitely tried to play it both ways, and he's said that the state needs a a statewide solution to homelessness. This is going to be on Gavin too if he wants to. Extend well, or, a national persona, or maybe now that he's a Marin County resident, he thinks homelessness has been solved. Well, it was, in, it was interesting. Uh, I was on the bus with Gavin, and he was asked a question about Prop C, and he said, "Well, you know, I'm going to be governor of the entire state, and if I just dealt with every single issue in every single county, that, I wouldn't oh, have the a Jerry Brown that, response exactly, to homelessness." I, I think I think that's hopeful for Californians who would like Gavin to be more like Jerry. Melody, that's like a Jerry answer, oh, isn't it? that's an absolute a, Jerry answer. I yeah. mean, that's a, I'm going to go ahead and look over here while you're talking to me um, <laughs> and just completely ignore what you're saying. Yeah, to claim that as the former mayor of San Francisco, whose number one priority was homelessness, to suddenly not care about San Francisco's major ballot measure on homelessness. Well, he moved out of the city. Did not so. fly. Yeah, he's just not there. Um, what else? Anything else uh, in San Francisco that we should that I wanted that to note in another about. strike against London Breed. She doesn't seem to be doing too well on her um, candidates for supervisor mm-hmm. either. Yeah, so, it looks like they're going to be a progressive majority. Yeah. Um, we know that Matt Haney has won in District 6. She backed the other two candidates in the race and not him. Um, and then the others are still shaking out with ranked choice voting, but it looks like um, Gordon Marr may have a shot out in the sunset, which would also be a big blow to her. So um, she did not have a good night. Ooh. Well, the seawall thing passed, though, so at least <laughs> the party was good. <laughs> she picked right. the right party. Well, let's move on to the state. Uh, Melody, what what do we learn from the state results tonight? What uh, What is the state of California going to look like tomorrow morning, or this morning, I guess? I, I mean, I think we're going to be looking at the legislature um, and whether or not there is a supermajority in both houses. The assembly, you know, very clearly they're going to hold on to their seats, um, and possibly pick up a couple more. So they've they've got some cushion there in the assembly. In the Senate, it was all coming down to whether or not they could pick up one more seat and have everybody retain their seats. And that right now is within, uh, the last I checked, was within a couple hundred votes. I mean, those are really close Central Valley seats that it could go either way. Um, and, you know, and that'll be interesting with you ha- with a new mayor coming in. I just I feel like that supermajority could go from being something that was considered, oh, it's nice to have and we'll use it when it's necessary to really being able to throw things um, and ram things through. Is that going to be Newsom's worst nightmare, though, to have a supermajority? Because are those guys going to want like 
they're going to want the store, right? Or, or what, how are the, how's that going to break down? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, that's going to send him every bill that Democrats want. Um, and there's going to be a lot of requests this time around. And I think he's going to be tested really early um, on what his, what where he's going to draw the line. And you're going to see a lot of Democrats, especially the first uh, January budget, saying, you know, well, you know, we really need more. Um, and with the surplus as it is, I, I, I just I think that that first test is going to come really fast. Who does he say no to? I mean, the the, the SEIU is giving him millions. The the nurses have given him millions. The uh, the the teachers. the teachers are giving him millions. Who who does he gonna who's he gonna buckle to? Is he gonna say no to anybody? <laughs> I mean, that'll that'll be the big question. Is uh, I mean, I think with the the Democrats coming in, there is obviously like even with the supermajority, you have the the conservative group of moderate Democrats that <laughs> are coming into the mods, and it's a growing caucus, and they have their own infighting even now, and um, and so I think it'll be interesting to see like just how much you can actually get through um, when you have a growing moderate Democrat voice coming through so ma- so maybe he won't have as much uh to deal with on his plate well that's you know one thing that uh, is really easy to see is that, that just because you have a lot of democrats there a two-thirds majority doesn't mean they all agree with each other right. and there are plenty of things where you know jerry was pretty good at splitting some of this stuff and managing to uh, work the democrats against each other now he had a lot more clout and he a lot more experience than gavin has gavin really doesn't have any relationships with the legislature at all. Right. And uh, it's going to be something brand new for him and not an easy thing. Because like Jerry found out, Republicans weren't going to be his problem. It's the Democrats. Yeah, and the other thing is, Jerry is capable of going into his office and staying there for a little while. Mm-hmm. Gavin Newsom, with his victory speech tonight, came out swinging and announcing California as the new headquarters of the resistance. And he was he named himself, you know, executor in chief of that resistance movement. That speech was 80 percent aimed at one person. And he is sitting in the Oval Office tonight. How many times did he use the word audacious? Not not even once. But what? I did say the word audacious. No. Yes. <laughs> By the way, you said a binary tonight, too. I as, did as, say binary. You said binary I've as our, listened as our to governor Gavin elect. a lot yes. over the years. Yes. You, you, he you, literally you. did not use it once. <laughs> literally. <laughs> Heather does the best literally. <laughs> literally. Literally. <laughs> um, He's it's said, all with love. It's, <laughs> yes, or ish. Whatever. Journalistic uh, <clears throat> love. Uh, <laughs> he said tonight, and his, uh, the, the governor-elect said this, uh, he doesn't want Trump to uh, disrupt California with the politics of chaos. And he said, because in California, we don't demean, we don't discriminate, and we don't demoralize. We don't separate families, and we don't lock kids in cages. There's a reason why California's dream is America's leading brand. Because California's dream has always been and has always and always will be too big to fail and too powerful to bully. So many quotable <laughs> lines in the speech. The whole, they like it or not. the whole speech was a bunch of quotes like yeah. just strung together in a way I've never seen before. It was yeah. incredible. Yeah. A lot of business references in there too. Too yeah. big to fail. Yes. On easy. the other hand, anything uh, Anybody who's in charge of California, somewhere along the line, has to work with the federal government. I mean, uh, matter of fact, that's one of the things that uh, when he's talking about his single-payer health plan, uh, that can't get done or anything like that getting done without a whole lot of uh, federal uh, <clears throat> federal uh, 
where they just the waivers, go and the they, 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 they need waivers they, all they over they, the place. They federal waivers. And uh, that might be an out for uh, Gavin to say, well, I wanted single payer, but those dang guys in Washington. But still, you got to work with them. They have a lot of money, and you got to figure out how to get it for the state. Melody, what's the what's the realistic probability of seeing any kind of single payer legislation? Is that going to come in right away, or just the, is it going to, or is no. Rendon going to like say no, no way? I mean, what's, you've seen this going? in the legislature. Essentially, the Senate passes a half cooked bill that said we'd like this and no details, and sends it over to the assembly. The assembly says. Yeah, we're going to need some details. Um, and so, How much it's going to cost? And, you know, and you I, know. it really, it, but it became such a hot button issue in the Capitol for months. You couldn't walk anywhere without the nurses union protesting outside uh, uh, Speaker Rendon's office. I mean, it was, it was a hot mess in the Capitol dividing, you know, whether or not you can move a bill that has no details just so you can keep working on it. I mean, there's no deadlines in the legislature. There are all pretend deadlines. Ever there's a waiver to every deadline in there, and so it just it was really kind of kick the can. We want you to come up with the plan, but I just I don't see this becoming. It's it's certainly not going to be something that could be cooked in a session like this. Did I mean it's just not going to happen. And even in talking to lawmakers, I mean, there's no there's no plan for the funding. There's no overall picture of how you can get this done in this state other than a commitment that this is where they want to head and and newsom backed off it when he was in the editorial board John. Hey, he did mm-hmm. a bit and by the way melody what do you think the over under is on the length of his state of the state speech? oh yeah, oh, yeah. oh no he, he jerry's last year was like the, 12 minutes and, well yeah, he yeah, actually yeah. gavin newsom when he was mayor actually i believe it was eight mm-hmm. hours he had a uh, state of the city address. The good news, though, uh, was on all video. on YouTube, on so video. you could miss it. But my editorial <laughs> Not writer, another night. <laughs> Mar- Mar- <laughs> Marshall killed off editorial writer and watched every every minute of it. In uh, my interview with him at, right before the primaries, I said, can you promise your state of the state will not be seven and a half hours? And I did get him to promise that. So. It'll only be six and a half. <laughs> yeah. We did an over-under last night when uh, uh, Jerry Brown and uh, Kamala Harris spoke to uh, spoke inter- introduced Newsom at his final campaign rally here in San Francisco and we set the over under on how long Jerry would uh, Jerry's introduction would be at 4 minutes he clocked in at 4 minutes and 20 seconds oh, wow. good guess yes. Yes, and he and he did mention Newsom a couple of times during the <laughs> intro, which was also a point of contention. Um, anything else we should learn from uh, we should know about uh, our state uh, uh, our state representatives? Who our next representatives going to be? It was largely uh, these are folks who it was you know it's going to be an all almost all Democrats, although we may have an, a nonpartisan uh, state wide constitutional officer as our insurance commissioner, correct? Correct. Uh, yeah, these you can see the excitement in Melody's yes, <laughs> Melody is looking right forward now. to correct. covering these stadiums. <laughs> yes. Steve Poisner, a former former Republican candidate for governor, uh, former uh, Republican state legislature legislator candidate. He lost. Former, did I say, oh, I'm sorry, former, yeah, candidate for governor and former, but he was a former assemblyman. No, he wasn't. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? Poisoner's never been. He ran, oh, that's right. he ran, he ran he for lost. a Redwood yes, City yes. Assembly seat, yes. but lost. My bet. Uh, but he was the state insurance commissioner once before. And, uh, yeah, oh, oh we, <laughs> we have breaking news, breaking on, the news. Pod, on the podcast. Uh, the 
Oakland mayoral race has been called for Libby Schaff, which is really isn't breaking news because that was predicted. What's breaking news <laughs> yes, is that yes. Oakland finally got enough results in for us to be able <laughs> to <laughs> say that. One, one Thank you, Oakland. So, uh, Melody, what does what does that mean that Poisoner is a uh, is the state insurance commissioner? Does that should we care? About oh that? yes, so much news comes out of his office. Um, I deal with it all the time. Um, no, I, you shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> no. um, so I mean, I don't know. I don't. I think of all the offices, this isn't the one that you're going to say this is a deal breaker. Um, I think it's you know an interesting defeat, um, and maybe that kind of. Uh, I mean, certainly there, there's a. A guy at home right now who's not feeling so good, um, but I, I don't know that this is an office that you can say like this is the, what we're going to hang our hat on and say that this is a movement. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, this is well, a tr- trend. Of, the uh, one yeah. thing it does issue. say is that at least somebody's won. Now, you know, Poisoner's a little different. He'd already held the office. People knew him as a Republican. Plus, he has more money than God and spent some of it in there, yeah. which isn't the normal way it is for a not, uh, not a lot of guys with that kind of profile for an independent yeah. uh, candidate. Yeah. Yeah. But still. First ever independent candidate to win a statewide office. That means something, especially since Republicans are now third, uh, the third party in uh, California behind the Democrats and the independents. It really does show how damaged the Republican brand is in California, that the only way to win as a Republican, if you are a Republican, is to disassociate yourself. <laughs> to renounce your Republican. To rip that R off your chest. And... Uh, and, you know, and you I, still have a close I, I mean, that that's clearly true. But I, I, I look at the maps that we have online of the propositions, and anyone who lives in the coastal area thinks they know California. And if you've not been to the Central Valley or far northern California, they do not agree with the people on the coast. And every single proposition breaks down this way. So, I mean, I think the problem for the Republicans is there aren't very many effective ones or good ones in the mm-hmm. state right now. If if they could get some really compelling candidates who are not, you know, the far right but more centrist, I you know, maybe you're not gonna you're not gonna break through San Francisco, but San Luis Obispo went with them a few times. I mean it's it's not as as black and white as we want it to be. Outside of the coastal urban areas, the state is very different. Yeah, but they're just the numbers just There's aren't not. there. I mean, but when we all can't live in San Francisco anymore, they're gonna move out there and they already are. They have been. Not that many. <laughs> no, not that many. But that's also making those areas more liberal or more moderate, which, you know, puts a Jeff Denham in, mm-hmm. you know, in the Central Valley, in the San Joaquin Valley, I should, I've been corrected online, uh, is, is being in, in danger because he's, his, uh, uh, his constituents are, are much more moderate. They're, they're Bay Area expats, um, which he made sort of the central theme of his campaign. Um, anything else we should know at the state level for our readers? Yeah, tomorrow? just the one thing is that uh, the proposition shows that oh, uh, yes, we have to money still talks. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. the amount of money that was put into these prop races for and against was just absolutely amazing. And typically, the ones who put the most money in won. We have uh, two props we should probably talk about. One is the gas tax. So we have not called that yet. We yeah. did. We, oh, we did, did right we before we came in here that it went down to defeat. So we will keep the gas tax. Yes. The bad news is you will be paying 12 cents a gallon. You continue to pay 12 cents a gallon. The good news is we'll have $5 billion a year to repair our roads, allegedly. Um, what does that tell us? What, did, what does that mean? That, we, that, we're, that Californians did that. Is that purely because it was the uh, anti-gas tax 
measure did not measure mention the words gas or tax on the ballot <laughs> proposition. Yeah, they got a little help from Javier Becerra, the yes. attorney general, with the title and summary, which um, which when we quizzed him about it in the editorial board, he said, "Well, the, the, I only had 200 words to work with." Oh. I said, "I think <laughs> so like gas, re gas tax repeals <laughs> gas tax would have taken three of those words, Javier." Um, but I think also there was so much money, you know, to your point, John, that basically the most money won in most of these uh, initiatives. There was, you know, tens of million. I think what was 40-something million dollars uh, opposed. 46, Is that right, Melanie? Yeah. 46. Yeah, yeah, well, just look at the dialysis measure. For one thing, what the heck was it doing on the ballot in the first place? And the second thing is that is there was more money put into that race than any other proposition California's ever seen. Mm -hmm. and Do we think there's going to be any backlash to uh, this year? Uh, we were voting on dialysis. We were voting on chickens in cages. Is there going to be voter backlash to that stuff? Like, why the hell are we voting on Don't this stuff? Don't forget daylight savings. And daylight savings. <laughs> oh, yeah, what happened with daylight savings? It won big. Uh -huh. Yeah, but now the legislature is going to have to decide. So we'll probably have another measure where the legislature punts that decision back to us. And <laughs> yeah, says, then Congress has to give them permission. Well, you think anything's going to get done in Congress on that? Uh, bringing up the question, what was this doing on the ballot in the first place? But do we think that anyone's going to push back on that? Or is this just... This I feel is like this, this has been a trend for years and it yeah. just keeps happening. So yeah. If it's up to my dad, I mean, his question for all of these was calling me and saying, why is this on the ballot? <laughs> um, I mean, on each of them. And I, I do think that there will be some backlash and, and, and when people start seeing that, you know, that people want to vote no if they think that this isn't something that should be coming before them. And I think on daylight savings time is one of the examples where you're voting on something that's not going to actually happen. Like, I mean, it, there's, it's like the step in a process that's... I, I, I actually was very surprised that Jerry Brown even allowed that on. I really didn't think he'd sign that. Yeah, and that's frustrating to voters. That, that feeds into the cynicism about politics and why this all, any of this all matters. Speaking of uh, things that matter and don't matter, uh, we, we Californians also seem to have rejected uh, an expansion of rent control. What, you know, in this, in this state where everything is so unaffordable, where uh, rents are skyrocketing, people are paying, you know, a, a third of California renters are paying a half of their, their income on rent. What does that tell us? What, why, did we, why did we reject that? I, I think that's another case of money. I mean, look at the amount of money that was spent to kill this and the groups that were involved. I mean, the, organ the group that formed in order to take this measure down they, I mean, they went to the groups that were going to be able to get people on the ground. They, they had NAACP. They had uh, so many groups throughout the state working this measure, saying that this is this is going to hurt renters. And I think there was a lot of message confusion in whether or not, you know, what are you voting for and whether or not as a renter you are going to be helped or hurt by this. And I think that that was what ultimately that confusion was what killed this. Well, and as a single-family homeowner, are mm -hmm. you, if you if you wanted to leave and rent your house, are you going to be subject to it too? I think people are very paranoid about how things are going to affect them, and that was a confusing measure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially when you don't know what a city's going to do. Mm -hmm. You're essentially opening the door and saying you're going to leave it to each city, and, and maybe that's a, a judgment of what voters feel like their local officials would do with, with expanded rent control. I was surprised, though, that San Francisco and the Bay Area voted that down in bigger numbers than the rest of California. You would think yeah. it'd be the opposite. Absolutely. I agree with you, Heather. I think that was the big surprise. Mm -hmm. and, and I will say, you know, full disclosure, our editorial board opposed um, 
uh, Prop 10 for a number of reasons. But I thought the anti-Prop 10 campaign, to your point, Melody, was almost disingenuous because if you listen to their commercials, it sounded like they were on the rent control side. Right. Like, this does nothing to help seniors, you know. Right. But again, who was on the other side? In California, if you don't have money to get on television, you don't exist. And they didn't have the money to get on the and come out against those sort of uh, ads. So they just got pummeled. Yeah, they didn't have a good constituency. I think the SEIU had some money behind it, and that's about it. But the labor in general was not behind it. They didn't. They didn't. They weren't able to tap into the deep pockets, other than the the construction Weinstein guys that, were against it. Yeah, yeah. And but this is. Was, I mean, this won't go away. I mean, this will come up in a bill in January. This will be in the legislature all year, and then probably back in, in the next and round for the next down. ballot. In fact, our governor-elect uh, was an outlier among Democrats in uh, opposing this. Uh, he said that he would uh, talk about it in the legislature. Do you see that happening? Probably. I think that's a bill January first. In the legislature, absolutely. Oh, really? wow. Yeah, okay. I, mean, I mean, David Chu has been very involved in this, and I can see him taking a bill up and trying to shepherd this through. Uh, and, you know, that's the one that gets people bust in by the thousands, like, for these hearings, and, you know, it fills the hallways. And so it's, it's, it's very contentious. And so I, I definitely think this will be something that comes up January Does 1st. Does it get through the legislature, you think, or not? Or the mods, mods kind of like stop? This I don't one? even think it's the mods. I think you've seen in in San Francisco where it was voted down. Like I just I don't think that this, I don't think that there's a clear enough um, road for what it is going to do. And so maybe it's taking on certain parts of Costa Hawkins, um, versus it just being opening the door entirely. But I feel like there would have to be some sort of deal and and. It reached in order for this to actually move forward, and it would not be anywhere close to what was on the ballot today. Just looking at the numbers today, there's no percentage for a Democrat to jump in and uh, be in charge of this again. It just isn't going to be helpful. Right. And in, even like in the example of like why, why did this fail so miserably in San Francisco, you know, I, I called the PPIC voters um, like that had contributed and asked them that question. And one of the things they were saying is essentially you know, we have rent control and it's not helping me. And so I think that that's sort of the, uh, the argument that they'll have to get past as well. All right. I think we're all out of beer right now. So it's probably time to end <laughs> I vote podcast. for more beer. <laughs> we, more we, beer and keep the I, tape rolling. I, I, <laughs> and another thing. We should, do, we should do all the podcasts like this. <coughs> we should do some editorial boards like this. <laughs> Who says we don't? <laughs> oh, now we're getting into the deep secrets of the Chronicle. All right. Well, uh, thank you all for listening. Thank you, uh, Melody, Melody Gutierrez. Thank you, Heather Knight. Thank you, John Diaz. Thank you, John Wildermuth. Thank you, Joe Garfoli. <laughs> thank you, Audrey Cooper. And thank you, Chronicle Manage, Managing Editor for Digital, Fernando Diaz, on your final podcast that you're recording. <laughs> we are going to miss you. We are going to miss you so much. Um, and uh, whether you voted or not, it's all political.
I'd like to thank Professor George Lakoff for being on today's It's All Political, and I'd like to thank Fernando Diaz for, for producing this episode. And as George Lakoff can tell you, no matter if you're breaking down metaphors or building up messaging frames, you know it's all political.